dry ice and day glow ribbon dancers who at the climax of their performance pelted the bleary-eyed editors with multicolored styrofoam popcorn it was 8:30 in the morning how about lash out asked mary no that's the name of the l'oreal mascara shit hmm batch of lashes bat up Mary, who was from Staten Island, said batch of lashes and batter up. Batter up is a little abstract, but not uncute, said Billy. Lashes to lashes, suggested Sandy. Morbid. Billy stood up and yelled over the partition in the direction of the clothes-strewn fashion cubicles. Somebody help me. I need a headline for a mascara caption, quick. Um, Lash Gordon? a lanky fashion editor offered. How about lash in the pan? Mary suggested giggling. Why don't you kiss my lash? Billy said saucily. Oh, wait, no. I got it. I got it. Lash of the Titans. Lash of the Titans? Is that stupid or cute? That's so cute, said Mary. Yeah, and it just screams major lashes said Sandy. Billy crowned her caption Lash of the Titans, printed it out, and dropped it in the box of the oft-absent executive fashion and beauty director. Page Beige Merchant was heavily tanned and heavily peroxided in a way that made her skin and hair color look indistinguishable, hence the nickname. Despite her eerie coloring, Paige was a ravishing beauty whose face and supermodel figure were frequently splashed all over society pages. She was old money, as a result of the chain of office supply stores her great-grandfather had started 150 years ago. After 15 years in the industry, Paige was over the whole working thing, so she was always on vacation, at the moment in Capri. She trusted Billy, the senior beauty editor, and her number two, to unofficially run the department. They'd worked together for five years, since Billy was a 21-year-old assistant. Billy pretended to resent picking up the slack for her lady-of-leisure boss, but secretly relished it. Okay, I'm gone. See you guys later, Billy said, grabbing her bag and heading for the elevator bank. Take the train. You'll never catch a cab, Sandy called after her. The Asusena people sent a car to pick me up, thank God. Bye. Billy said over her shoulder before stopping abruptly and running back to her cubicle to retrieve her forgotten cell phone. She managed to make the elevator just as the doors closed. It wasn't until she reached the 44th floor that she realized she was heading up rather than down. Jesus Christ, she muttered, rubbing her temples. She had a migraine that could have killed a horse. The second Billy located the Lincoln Town car with a card reading Burke in the window, her cell phone started to ring. It was Renee. Girl? Hey, said Billy. Let me call you right back. I'm on my way to this thing. No, I'm so excited. You have to listen to me. What? Billy said, climbing into the car while balancing the phone between her ear and shoulder. This better be so important. It is, it is. I found my next writer, and he's so perfect I could scream. 
and her history was full of hunches that had turned into gold, which was why at such a tender age she was a full-blown book editor at Crawford and Collier Books. Starting as an editorial assistant, a college grad usually filed, typed, and read appallingly bad manuscripts from authors who weren't even good enough to get agents. If an assistant actually found something publishable, she turned it over to her senior editor boss, who then immediately took credit. Even once you got an entertainment budget with which to wine and dine agents who had the good manuscripts, you discover that they'd rather sip an arsenic spritzer than submit something readable to a junior editor. Success in book publishing was all about instinct, luck, and a boss who liked you. Renee Bird had all three. At 24, she'd had her first success with The Woman, a book of new essays on female identity in different decades by great women writers. It included chapters like, Is Love Ever Really Free? And Carol Brady has...